this. He's the Saber Advisors audio experience. Look at all the pink rings in this room. That makes me really happy. So why don't we uh, why don't we just kick off uh, setting up the room while we're waiting for Sarah to join us? So uh, welcome to the CRE Digital Army's Friday discussion on Clubhouse. We love uh, using platforms like Clubhouse and other social media platforms because we are content creators uh, and we also reside in commercial real estate. So. I like to say over the last many years at this point that I live at the intersection of commercial real estate and digital media. And uh, that kind of spawned this whole community called the CRE Digital Army. And uh, we are recording this room because we will capture and recreate this content and push it out in other uh, on the other platforms uh, because that's what we do, right, Gary? That is right. We're all content creators. Good stuff. So, Carrie, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, who we who we have today and whatever else you'd like to chat about before Sarah joins yeah, us? Yeah, I just shot her a text with the roommate. Sure, she had. She's probably on another clubhouse right now. She's like going around the clock on clubhouses. But so I met Sarah because she wrote. She's the author of Instabrain, the new rules for marketing to Gen okay. Z. Yeah. And it's a it's a really, really good book. And I posted about it and it just talks about the differences of how millennials spend their money and Gen Z spend their money. Yeah. And when I posted about it, Sarah reached out to me like a true researcher <laughs> does. And she wanted to understand what I do and who is my audience because it was so relevant to the the people who my followers. Um, she she owns her own market research company. It's a leading research company for consumers. She's done work for Google and PayPal, IBM, PBS, all these massive companies. And she's based in Washington, DC. And when I was going back and forth, just when I was lobbying, I met up with her a bunch. And so she's done a lot of work for the Carrie Bob Foundation too, yep. which has been awesome. So um, I've gotten to know her really, really well. And uh, I'm bummed. I, I hope she shows up, pops in here soon. I, I just pinged her. But Listen, the beautiful part is, Carrie, there's no pressure because, you know, you and I, well, maybe we should let everybody know right now that you and I are starting a podcast. We are. I mean, that's pretty cool. And I'm sure nobody saw that coming. <laughs> well, and it's fun because you guys, we were recording our intro yesterday and we were just talking about all the things that we love to talk about. And we, the topics kept getting broader and broader, like just how you grow a business and the amazing people you meet on the way. Sarah's a perfect example. Like, I don't know if our paths would have crossed if we weren't doing like purpose-driven business and all this kind of stuff. And um, yeah. yeah, so I'm excited about that for the podcast. You're, you're super modest and you don't really truly understand your superpowers and how great you are, which is what's also great about you, Carrie, but you know, you, any of these high functioning folks that, you know, you're meeting along the way, you're adding as much value to their life as they're adding to yours. And I would argue in some cases you're adding more. So, well, that's very kind. Thank you. It's been a crazy, crazy journey, some ups and downs, but the people who have really rallied have been really cool. Sarah's definitely one of those and I've just have learned a ton from her. And I've learned a lot about the how important purpose-driven business is to consumers and how to market and message it from Sarah. 
and how companies like Google and PayPal and all of them all look at it. I'll look at it. And so for any of us, just even on our own personal brands, standing for something, and it doesn't have to be like a con controversial issue or anything, but just how important it is. Sarah, there you are. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, I'm so sorry I'm late. I was on a client call and I kept being like, I have to go. <laughs> <laughs> we know how that goes. No worries at all. We were just setting the stage. Awesome. I kind Thanks of so did. Thanks so much for having me today. Sarah, I am so pumped you're here. And you guys, I've been wanting to introduce you to Sarah for a while, just because she's made such a huge impact on me personally and many of all of our businesses. And she's just incredible. So for all of you who joined, let me just run through really quickly her background and then we'll get to it. But so Sarah runs one of the leading market research companies on consumer trends and behavior. And she's done research for Google and IBS and PB, IBM and PBS. And she's, she's worked for major companies across the country. She's the best-selling author of Instabrain. And she's a keynote speaker, a LinkedIn learning instructor. She has six courses on marketing and brand storytelling. She's a mom to two little girls. The kind of work that she does is next level you guys. I mean, it, it applies to all of us personally. It applies to our clients, whether they're landlords or tenants. Um, if you're not following her on Instagram and LinkedIn, it, it's a good idea to do that because her work so directly impacts our business. So Sarah, welcome to the CRE Digital Army. Oh my gosh, what an introduction. Thank you. I, I don't know if I can live up to all of that, but, but thank you for that. That's very kind of you. You will. I can't wait to watch you run here. Sarah, I, I've uh, I've been following along, and and uh, I I have your book Instabrain, and and it's unbelievable. So uh, I feel like I know you already, which is also another amazing thing that uh, these different platforms you know provide. So uh, I'm super excited to uh, to meet you. I know I'm a lot of to be here. I got to ask you though, what is what's the pink border around so many of the faces here? Go for it, Jay. It's a great question. So yeah, it, it means you're a member of the CRE Digital Army. So uh, the CRE Digital Army is a group that Carrie and I co-founded uh, for like-minded, uh, radically collaborative folks in the commercial real estate space that use uh, social media, video technology in commercial real estate to, uh, to build their businesses. Radically collaborative. I love that. Julie, did you, I don't know if Julie's in here, but she coined that. Uh, yeah, for sure. I literally just wrote that down on a post-it note. I love that term. That's awesome. And I know, I know several people in here have your book because like Corey Zelnick texted me a photo of your book after I was telling him about you. And so there's a lot of real estate people who've read Instabrain, but I want to, I want to get into some of these questions with you because I'm so fascinated to hear your thoughts on some of these things. So Brick and mortar retail in general, across the board, what kind of trends are you seeing? Okay. So I want to say something that might be a little controversial in this company here. I think there's this sentiment right now that what happened to retail in 2020 was actually just an acceleration of what was to come anyway. The bankruptcies, the mall closings, the freaking 36% jump in e-commerce in a single year. And of course, the fuller pockets of all of those big guys in the world like Amazon. And I think a lot of people are saying, hey, this was going to happen anyway. COVID just sped things along. 
but I believe that's just wrong. And I say that for a couple of key reasons. So the first reason is that based on my research with Gen Z pre-COVID, so kind of the up and coming generation of young people ages 14 to 25-ish today, this is a generation who's influencing, by the way, 655 billion a year. Like that is just, it's an overwhelming purchase power. Can, so they can you say that have, again? I'm sorry to interrupt, but can you, can you just say yeah. what you said again? This generation is influencing 655 billion a year in purchases. So they only have about 44 billion a year in direct purchase power, but they are influencing their family and friends to buy things. And so they're impacting all other generations to purchase, to make purchases. And so it is like unbelievable that you might be thinking, oh yeah, they don't, a lot of them don't have jobs yet. They can't be buying that much. They are influencing so many purchases and family purchasing especially has become so democratized where people are asking their kids like, oh, what should we have for dinner tonight? I mean, just think about like when you were growing up, did your mom ever ask you like, oh, what do you think we should, uh, where do you think we should order out from tonight? Like, no, but now we're asking our kids that like every single purchase we make, it has become much more democratized across the family. Okay. So I've got some questions for you. So the, when you said they're influencing the purchases, I get what you just said right now, like as a family where they're all having the conversations on the purchases. When you first said it, my, my first inclination was on social. What? Yeah, no, they're not. Yeah. I mean, they are influencing purchase on social, but really they're influencing their family and their friends and their parents and their grandparents and their aunts and their uncles. And like everybody who knows them to do things and buy things differently. I mean, just think about all the people like 70 and older in this country that now have an iPhone just to talk with, just to FaceTime with and, and connect with other family members. That would not have happened without Gen Z influencing that. So, so I love like this is you're speaking my language here. And I love the fact that you're saying that it hasn't necessarily been an acceleration of what was going to happen otherwise. Right. Because a lot of times, you know, I'm talking about, I'm talking about how COVID accelerated everything by five to seven years. Right. Like that's just a very basic statement and it's, it's widely used in our industry um, so let, let's tell us so, exactly what you mean so by it has it. not accelerated it because based on my research pre COVID, this generation were coming back to stores. They wanted to touch and feel and have an experience associated with their products. They were in retail stores and much more than the millennial generation um, who is way more into e-commerce. So if you look at the numbers and you look at the data, Gen Z wants to be in retail stores. And I, I'm saying this when I'm thinking, when I say this, I, I'm thinking of stores too that actually have experiences for them, like Sephora, where people can go in and touch and feel and try the products and actually have an experience when they're in a retail store. Yeah, so I, I was just going to say that I would imagine 
that, you know, these folks are not going to go to the tired traditional retailers that are suffering the most. Uh, and by the way, we're suffering pre-pandemic, right? Like, so when I'm talking about accelerating, uh, you know, companies that are going out of business, I'm talking about the same company that's selling the same damn yellow sweater, you know, in, in stores across neighborhoods across the U.S. where you do not need 2,500 stores that are all selling the same thing. So I think it's a combination of the things, Sarah, and I'd like to get your, your take on that, you know, it, because I'm, I'm assuming these younger folks have a discerning palate and they're going to come in and expect something unique and, you know, experiential and current. And it doesn't mean that they would have saved JCPenney or Pier 1. Yes. And personalization is key for this generation. Like they want every single, they, they don't just want personalization, they expect it. Can you talk about that more? Like they're not, they're not delighted when they go and they, they go to a website and they see some sort of like personalized experience. It's just, oh yeah, that's the way it is. So when you look at what delights people in different experiences, you actually see more delight happen with older generations who see a personalized experience and they're like, oh yeah, cool. That's made just for me. That's so awesome. But this generation, they've just come to expect that. So if you are selling that same yellow sweater in every single store and it's not jiving with that neighborhood or the types of people that are coming into that store, that's going to be a problem and they're not going to come in anymore. Sarah, can I, I was just going to say real quickly, uh, Carrie, you know, that's you and I believe that, you know, landlords are going to have a very big challenge uh, moving forward, you know, to 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 create unique experiences uh, with a healthy combination of national slash regional and local tenants. Um, and I think that that is, you know, there's a direct correlation there as well. Yeah, I went there too. And just how you guys, how important creating custom content is for all of us, whether it's our individual brand or for like the properties, because everything has to be so hyper personalized. But yeah, so Sarah, one of the social is such I'm a sorry. great way to do that. And I, I think the second reason that I think that assumption is wrong too, and it goes along the lines of what you were saying, Carrie, with how custom, you know, custom content is key online, is that there's this faulty assumption that e-commerce and brick and mortar stores, they're mutually exclusive. That if someone buys on e-commerce, it's because they don't want to come into the store. And that's just simply not true. So I think if, if COVID had not happened, we would have seen a lot more pivot and a lot less going out of business. So I, I don't think it necessarily just accelerated what was going to happen anyway, based on what I'm seeing in the marketplace too. I've got, a, I certainly have a few predictions of what's going to happen with brick and mortar stores. If, if you want to hear a few, or yeah, if you want to stop for there sure. and talk through. No, I think you should. But I also want you to know that everything you're saying, I would, I would say that every, almost everyone in this room would agree with you. Everybody pretty much knows retail real estate and everything you're saying is probably very well received with everybody. So yes, I want to, yeah, no angry DMs, please. <laughs> Sarah, yeah, please. Um, you know, I, I, well, it's interesting, too, because we're seeing a lot of, 
you know, digitally native brands, obviously, that are uh, that are entering brick and mortar. And that's be go- going to definitely become a more common uh, theme. And there's lots of businesses that are in business to help those digitally native brands actually learn how to uh, do brick and mortar. Right. So but would love to hear some predi- predictions. So the first one has to do with that social experience. The first one is that my first prediction is that stores will become less about buying in the store and more about experiencing the brand while you're in the store. So there will be cool stuff to do and it's going to involve smart tech and there'll be interactive displays and augmented reality and kiosks and other activities where you can use your phone to have some sort of personalized experience in a retail environment. And you can either buy there, yes, or better yet, order through the website while you are there. So it would be a combining of both e-commerce and some and brick and mortar stores. So wouldn't it be cool if more, more e-commerce actually resulted from an in-store visit? Yeah. So, so like, so like come in and like try cooking with this pan and learn some cooking skills and then have it shipped to your home with a physical like buy now button that you press in the store or like come in and and personalize your own jewelry with augmented reality and then like design things yourself and have them made and, and mailed to you. So I think we're going to we're going to see that and we're also going to see like some blending of those social media campaigns where you're encouraging to people to come in and like do a TikTok challenge in a some cool part of your store which then would lead to like a lot of user generated content for your social media for your Instagram and other places too. And I think there's there's an authenticity about that that's going to be really cool for stores to capture if if they if they have the foresight to do it like if they have the foresight to blend those social media campaigns with retail can which you, is something a lot of retail's not doing right now yeah can you share some of the like some what are some of the coolest marketing campaigns you've seen for a brick and mortar store oh sorry i was like talking on mute <laughs> Um, the coolest one that I've seen, so we did this, we did a study with Second Avenue um, thrift superstores. So it's a chain on the East Coast of thrift stores. And they're like, they're huge. They're like the size of a Target with all thrift items in there. And they, I mean, they have like, I think they put out 30,000 new items on the floor every day. Like it is, it is a system it is amazing that the operations that go on in that place, but they, we were doing some research on how to get more people into the store because like many in retail today, they were seeing fewer people come into the store, but they were seeing the basket sizes were a little bit larger when people would come in, they'd kind of stock up on stuff. And so one way we got more, we were able to, I think it's really key to think about just, a lot of people are like, oh, how can I do, you know, traditional advertising or how can I do social media advertising or, oh yeah, I want to do Instagram. Let's do Instagram. And they come in like with that, the type of marketing they want to do in their head, but there's so many, there's such a world of, of marketing. There's so many different things you can do. And one of the campaigns that we have been trying out with them is um, with a, a company called Ground Truth, and it's location 
based marketing. So if somebody, we found out that like this, they have this one particular persona that comes into their store quite a bit, um, this mom persona, and she shops seasonally and she'll go in there and she'll stock up for her kids um, on whatever size they are. But then she ends up spending even more money shopping for herself, even though that wasn't her intent by coming into the store. So they're, they're wondering, how do I get this mom persona to come into the store more often since she's shopping for herself, not her kids really in reality. And so one way to do that, we knew we can figure out who the moms are in the, in the area by using location data. So we know because they're, because your phone has location data on like 95% of people have location services turned on in their phones, we can tell in a geographic region that is near that store within a couple of miles of a store of one of the second Avenue stores, we can tell if that, if like which people are moms based on where they visit. Oh, they went to a school and they went to Starbucks and they went to an office park. And like, we can basically, we understand what behavior is, is a mom behavior. So we can tell who they are and then we can say, okay, I know that they group their shopping visits. So I know that a mom who's going to Home Goods is also going to be going to Target in the same day. And that's a mom that's typically also going to shop at Second Avenue. So if they go into Home Goods a mile away from the Second Avenue and they happen to be on their phone on an app that has a banner ad, say they're checking the weather, they're on the Weather Channel or they're playing Tetris or whatever it is, they're on their phone doing something a banner ad can pop up and say, hey, we've got a 50% off sale today only on kids clothes and it's one mile away from you. Click this link to get map directions on how to get there. And then they can actually, if they're spending enough, they can actually be charged on visit data. So cost per visit, not cost per impression, which is really cool. So you don't actually get charged until the person goes into your parking lot, like within X number of meters of your store. Yeah, I think, I mean, what I've seen you do on this, Sarah, is so next level to like most people are, are all using or doing some sort of geofencing on, on some of their data and analytics for sites, but you get so granular to that one specific person, one of the one of the techniques that you shared with me that absolutely blew me away, and I think we were talking about it for for beat the bill or the the foundation or something. But you were telling me how you get consumers to record do a video recording for you, and you catalog all of that. I know it's a little different than what we're talking about, but it was so fascinating. Can you talk about that for for a minute? Yeah, so that's one really awesome way to do market research, especially in a pandemic when we're not going into people's homes to do ethnography, to do in-person ethnography. So an example of that is we did a study for a large coffee brand. And when people were, so we asked people, over, you know, a very specific persona of people, we asked them, we recruited them and said, hey, over the next four days, every time you brew coffee, just take out your phone and take a selfie video and show us what you're doing. And we found out that in that persona of people, 10% of them brewed coffee in their bathrooms. And the company came to us and they were like, we've done surveys, we've done ethnography, we've done focus groups, we have, we've done interviews, we've done all of this data and we have never 
we never knew that this many people were, were brewing coffee in their bathrooms. So they needed a compact coffee maker, one, but they were embarrassed about it. So we couldn't market it as buy this thing to brew coffee in your bathrooms. And instead we had to market it as, oh, get the hotel experience from home. And we knew that was gonna work because this 10% there that was brewing coffee in their bathrooms, they were actually a very specific persona. They were moms with small children and they, to use a mom example again, there were moms with small children and they just needed like five minutes to themselves in the morning. And it was this way for them to just like escape their children <laughs> and just totally have a minute <laughs> and have a minute to themselves to drink a cup of coffee. Because by the time they, if you ask them in an interview, like, where do you brew coffee? They would have said the kitchen because they legitimately have a coffee maker in their kitchen. But by the time they get to the kitchen, their day had started and it had become chaos already. So like somebody needs needs like food and somebody else is running around without pants and like stuff happens. So they just didn't have a moment in the kitchen to to just relax for a second and to just have that five minutes. So they were brewing coffee in their bathrooms. That is fascinating. It never yeah. occurred to me to do that, but I can relate on so many levels to those stories. This is actually one of the reasons why women take much longer showers. Moms, I guess, <laughs> not women, but moms take, on average, the average woman takes an eight minute shower and moms with small children take a 12 minute shower on average. And it's really because they're trying to like escape from their children. <laughs> Okay, we could go off on this. This is a whole nother room. Okay, I've heard you talk about the sandwich method for your research. Can you talk about that? What is it? Yeah, did you want to move on from predictions? I, uh, no. I, more predictions. You know, real quickly though, <laughs> I, I I just wanna I just wanna like tie this all together for this audience because everything, Sarah, that you're talking about is going to have an impact on retail real estate brokers. And a lot of the things that have been happening, like you mentioned, pre-COVID um, were happening anyway, right? And, and I think that based on the concept of showrooming uh, and, and companies like Nike, um, you know, removing retail stores and, and just building up a beast of, of a online business, obviously, uh, you know, it's really about creating communities and again, there's just not going to be as many chains that have thousands of locations. And that has a direct impact on the bottom line of a lot of our businesses. So I just wanted to interject, interject that for a second. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Keep going more with the pre predictions. I'm yeah, so sorry. <laughs> those are, those <laughs> are so juicy. I've got a couple more. Yeah, yeah I, I was thinking us. about this because you said we're going to talk to to real estate or um, retail tenants, and I was like, okay, well, I got to think about what I know and make some predictions. So I have a couple more ready. So um, it, you know, we talked a little bit about experiences and having experiences in the store. Um, this kind of that kind of leads me to this other prediction where there might be a blending of shopping and entertainment. So. I don't know how it will work, but I think that's more of what we'll be seeing in the next five years. And it makes me think of like how mixed use real estate is kind of built for this, where there's a little shopping and there's a little entertainment. And I think people are going to be going to retail stores for that entertainment and those experiences 
not they're going to end up buying stuff, but it's going it's more for the entertainment, I think. Absolutely. Does that jive with what you're you're seeing? Yes, for sure. J Jay and I talk about that right almost every day because I think it's so important to how properties posi position themselves both the the overall merchandise merchandising and experience at a project as well as the perception on social. And I think that, you know, it's it, the the pandemic definitely, obviously, had a tremendous Im impact on all of our habits and routines. And what I would have gone to a store for pre-pandemic has definitely changed now. And I think that's why it's so, you know, it, it, it's it's you're going to really have a difficult time. Uh, just being a traditional store, you know, in this kind of, you know, where everything is going. And I think entertainment is, you know, the reason that a lot of people are going to show up at at projects. And, you know, Carrie and I are uh, doing a lot, you know, with regard to, to that type of stuff with Hello Jenny, which is a, a whole subject for another time. But, you know, it's really driven by that thesis. Yeah. And, ooh, I can't wait to hear about Hello Jenny. Um, my next kind of my last like prediction would be that I think you're going to start seeing stores within stores and a bunch more shared spaces. So going along with that Sephora example from earlier, I think you're going to see more of that like Sephora micro experience or a mini store inside other stores. Um, so I think Sephora and Kohl's now have a deal um, or Ulta and Beauty, like a dedicated area inside a Target. I think you're going to see a lot more like micro experiences within larger stores and shared spaces. I also think you're going to see a lot of unexpected partnerships crop up where two totally unrelated but um, compatible stores will be sharing space and complementing each other, like stores that you wouldn't have thought would go together before. Um, like things that make sense, though, like a service-based business sharing space with something that's traditionally had its own retail location. Like, I, I mean like a soul psycho and a, and a Lululemon combined. Um, and I know that would never happen, but the type, that's the type of pairing I believe we're going to be seeing in the future. That's fascinating. I think you're right. I, I, I think we, I think we will be seeing that kind of stuff. And I think even too on um, local and regional levels, not just with national partnerships. I think we're going to see that too. I think that's awesome, Sarah. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yes. Yeah, I think it's really, you know, it's interesting because everything that you've said really exemplifies how important it is for companies to build community. And I think when you mentioned the SoulCycle example, uh, it's a great example because, you know, I, I have been involved in rooms uh, with boutique fitness uh, clients like SolidCore where we're out looking for the right private equity partners and we weren't only talking to private equity. We were talking to, you know, we were having conversations around the idea of a Lululemon uh, getting involved, obviously, as uh, as a partner in the company. And then they since acquired Mirror. Um, and, you know, what a great example of, you know, a, 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 an apparel company uh, getting into the fitness space uh, while streaming is, is changing how people choose to do their fitness. That's an awesome example. I love that. Okay. Can I ask you about 
your sandwich method? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And I'm sorry I jumped I'm, the gun. These are all so good. <laughs> like I've written everything down. I'm using it. You nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So a lot of times with our research clients, and, and this is with in any industry, we have been doing kind of the sandwich method of research. And I say sandwich because it's a little qual, a bunch of quant, and then a little qual. So you're eating like a quant sandwich with qual bread. Um, so basically we will, a lot of companies come to us and they're like, we need a, sur a survey. We have to do a survey because we want quantitative, statistically significant data. But the problem is if you don't do the qualitative piece up front, you're not going to know what questions to ask. So we do a little bit of qualitative research, and that could be the video diary studies, or it could be um, a lot of times, and most, I would say 90% of the time, it's interviews up front and not focus groups. Focus groups are great for brainstorming, but not for getting like the in-depth psychographics of your of your ideal customer. Um, so we do a lot of one-on-one -on -one interviews and based on those interviews, even if you're doing like 10 one-on-one -on -one interviews at the start of your project, you are going to quickly see trends and know what like form hypotheses about your business. And based on that, you will now know what to specifically ask about in a large scale survey. So we do a little bit of qual, and then we'll do a quantitative study. But in that quantitative study, you are going to have, you're going to find things where you're like, whoa, I want to dive into that. I want to dig deeper. So if you're just doing qual and quant, you don't have the chance to do the follow-up qualitative deep dives that you need to do to really understand what's going on with something, like why, why numbers are showing up a certain way. Uh, I think quant is really quantitative research is great for understanding the what, like what's going on, but you need that qualitative piece to understand the why and really deep dive into that and to like get that context around it. So then we follow it up with qualitative research. So it's qual, quant, qual. So that would be like our sandwich method that that I think our, our company is pretty, pretty well known for. Okay, I want to ask you to break it up just a little bit because when I first heard you talk about this, I had to like wrap my head around a couple things. And so like everyone in this room does psychodemographics and like consumer data demos that we pull from Esri. Can you talk about the difference between the some of the demos you're talking about? And then I also think it's important when I've heard you talk about some of the interviews that you do with people in person, like when you go to their homes and some of the things that were eye-opening that you, that you or your client didn't see. I think that's really interesting too. Yeah. So the numbers are great, but they just tell you what's happening and they tell you what's happening over a large scale, but you still don't know why it's happening. You can guess, you can hypothesize, but until you actually talk to people and or, or observe their behavior and follow them around, you're not going to know why. So in, in that thrift store example, like we did 550 in-store interviews, like intercept interviews at, at different stores, like up and down the East Coast. And one thing we found at almost all of the stores is that the shoppers that came in every day or like routine shoppers, they would come in, they would put they would grab stuff and put it in their carts. And then right before checkout, they would take stuff out of their carts. 
because they had this like internal budget in their heads where, but they felt like they had to put it in their cart because it was like a one of a kind thing and they didn't want anybody else to like come along and grab it. So observing that behavior and saying, okay, that's really interesting. What could we do to like enhance that in some way or to build that, that anxiety of like that fear of missing out that we have 30,000 new items coming onto the floor every day. And if you're not there today, you're going to miss out on that item. Um, so we can use the observational data that you're not going to get in statistically significant numbers. And we can use that and create marketing strategies around it. Okay. So I'm working on a really large mixed use development. You and I have talked about it a little bit. And so from the landlord's perspective, because I get what you just described for the retailer and how they're going to, you're going to like spark that fear of missing out. When we're working on a merchandising strategy for the, the tenant lineup on a property, can you give me an example of how you're using the data that would apply for that? Yeah, so I'm actually working on a really cool project right now doing research on smart technology in mixed-use real estate developments. So, and actually, if anyone is here and wants to participate in the research, I would love to talk with you. Please DM me on Instagram. I'm looking for commercial developers, property managers, and retail tenants who work with, like, uh, or who work with or are attendant in mixed-use real estate projects who are considering investing in smart tech because I want to know what matters to you and your return on investment and the bottom line. So in this, in this example, we're trying to talk through like what smart tech would be meaningful to those three audience, um, through those three audiences and what would really move the needle on something that's more than like a nice to have like what if smart tech could could add interactive experiences for customers that kept them coming back or what if an iot device that you put in the traffic lights around your stores could optimize traffic flow based on a live feed of how many cars bikes and pedestrians are on the street and going in with which direction and could like actually integrate with the traffic lights to change the lights based on volume, not timing. So it's those kind of questions where we're thinking about, okay, what can we do that's kind of out of the box that will make an impact? And we can't do that until we understand what's important to customers. So like, quantitative data is not going to get you that. That has to be done with qualitative data. I, I love it. And I want to talk to you offline about that project. And then I, I want to be part of your market study, if that's okay. I, I know you and I've talked about it, but you're, you're already in. Yes. We're, okay. totally, we're going to meet next week. I, I have it in my head. I okay. haven't asked you yet, but yes. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay. You guys, um, I've got one more question before we open it up for uh, Q and a with Sarah, but I know you've got so many projects. Are there any research projects that you haven't talked about that you're working on in relation to real estate that you think would be helpful for the audience to hear you talk through? Yeah, I mean, pre-COVID actually, and this was one that didn't you know, get off the ground because of COVID, but pre-COVID, both you and I were talking about, you, you met with me out in DC um, with a develop, large developer group 
um, Carrie, where yeah. we were planning to do research on Gen Z to understand what people might want to buy five years from now when it comes to apartments, like how to actually, like apartments that were not built yet, how to actually design them. What should the kitchens be like? What should, how many rooms would be optimal? Like the making predictions about stuff that's going to move the needle five years from now, not today. So using data from today to, to predict in the future how apartments should be built. Like if we could figure out for like a hundred thousand on a hundred thousand dollar project, do some research to figure out what people are going to want. We calculated we could earn them tens of millions in a return by increasing the cost per square foot. So that was a really interesting one where just a little bit of research could make a huge monetary impact down the line. That's awesome. I, I, I love hearing about all your projects. They're so fascinating. Does anybody have any questions for Sarah on any specific well, projects? Guys, this is an amazing opportunity um, to learn from Sarah. This is, this is I'm, I'm so amped up about this conversation. And I really, I don't know your space that well. Like I'm not a retailer, I'm not a developer. I just do research and spot patterns where most people can't. So that's kind of my, my superpower, just to I do research really well and spot patterns and data. But that's what makes you good to this audience is that yeah. you're not in this space. Exactly. And that, you know, I think it's funny, you know, Carrie, because when you said earlier that, you know, a lot of the folks in this room are using uh, psychographics and, and tapestry segments, you know, uh, not everybody that does, you know, what we do uses, you know, that strategy and, and those platforms. And I know that because I know some of these uh, folks in the room are always reaching out to me to find out exactly, you know, what we do on the national advisory side, which ties directly into that. Right. Because, Sarah, we're basically, you know, we're designing strategies based on A.I., um, and data has changed the way that we roll out strategies for retailers across the U.S. Uh, and, and in local markets. And in addition to that, you know, it's crazy now with all the access to data, like direct-to-consumer brands know exactly where their clients are, unlike traditional retailers that are kind of yes. guessing, yeah, snuggling up to, oh, well, if my, McDonald's is in that, in that location and they're doing $3 million in sales, let's just go across the street from them which is typically how it's been done. And then I would also say that, you know, in addition to that, a lot of the stuff that you're talking about with marketing through geofencing and directly targeting folks, folks based on, you know, where they're coming from and where they're going to after they visit a store and then actually triggering, uh, advertising onto their phone when they're when they're you know breaking a, a geofence it's stuff i'm thinking about but quite honestly i'm thinking about it in my marketing company that i own i'm not necessarily thinking about it you know in the real estate uh business because it's more marketing so i think what you're doing is absolutely amazing and it fascinates me uh and it it ties back directly into you know what Carrie and I are, are working on together as well. So guys, does anybody have any questions? I think, 
I think there's a lot of overlap between kind of this B2B and versus like direct to consumer type of type of things we're seeing too. And I can give you an example of that unless somebody has questions. We have hands raised. I, I'm Okay. Well, let me talk about an example. It's not in, it's not in um, real estate or retail. Um, it's in kind of auto, the auto industry, but it's kind of a cool example of how we can think about things differently and expand reach. So we're working right now with a super innovative company that installs these like internet of things devices into cars like under the dashboard of a car and basically the purpose of this initially was to just track the location of the car so that when you have a hundred thousand cards on a lot at one of those huge car auctions that were where used car dealers um you know can can actually come and, and buy their cars for their dealership. Like when you have those huge car auctions, you can actually track it within three meters and know exactly where their car is. Um, so that was the original intent. But then they found out, well, this internet of things device, it can plug into the computer directly and it can get diagnostic data on the car. And that's really valuable to those dealers because they're not, they may not want a car where the airbag has deployed. Like it's, kind of like a car fax on crack, I would say, um, where it can do every, it can tell you everything from like the tire pressure in the car is low right now, like all of the stuff, not just the big things. And then, and, and live too, not, not just car fax. Um, and so can we take that and apply it to a direct to consumer play? So what if, and just go with me on this for a second, what if we took that car and we sold that car to a consumer with this internet of things device in it okay and what if that device can track their car's performance and predict when something's about to go wrong with their car like what if it could send them a text message and say hey your spark plugs a b and c are low and given where you are in the United States and given the average price of gas and the average amount that you drive per week, you will be paying an extra $60 in gas if you continue to use these inefficient spark plugs. Instead, we can ship you the spark plugs to your house for $50 or we can ship them to a dealer of your choice. So you're make, like you could actually sell more that way and, and actually change the behavior of every car owner in the United States because they're, or in the world really, who has these devices in there because you're constantly, um, you know, telling them ahead of time that something's gonna go wrong with the car instead of where most people right now just wait for their car to die and then take it in and it's like a, a panic. That's incredible. That's, that's crazy. Yeah, so we're we're looking at things from the entire buyer journey, not just like while they're in the store. That's just one touch point. We're trying to figure out that entire journey of like end to end from awareness to consideration to like to the buying, to the unboxing, to the the after effects. Like what are they they're doing with your product and and that in that end to end journey.
It's fascinating because my head goes, okay, well, if you are a landlord of a shopping center, can you predict trends on who's going to renew, who's going to stay, all that kind of stuff, just like the, because the tenants are the consumers, right, for the landlords, those are their customers. And so if we can predict those things, but even though it's companies, it's just fascinating. I think it just makes sense. I bet you could do that. I bet you could do that with a really cool AI system. Like something that learns behavior and take continually takes in new data about, um, you know, factors going on in the world, learns it, incorporates that data, and then makes that prediction about whether for whether tenants are going to stay. You might need to talk offline and figure that part out because. Yeah, we're actually we're working right now with a with a. AI startup that offers like pl- basically plug and play AI systems. I bet that would be a really cool application of it. I have clients that would gladly test it. So let's, let's talk about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by, you know, obviously the, the paradigm shift that, you know, really truly is consumer behavior, right? Like at the end of the day, you know, I'm just visiting stores less and less. And, you know, it's not just me, it's everybody, right? And, and you know, when I talk about the acceleration as a result of the pandemic, you know, I'm looking at things that, you know, my, my, my father, you know, who is not tech savvy and never ordered anything, you know, through his iPhone really previous to the, uh, the pandemic, you know, learned how to use that tool and he's not going to unlearn that when everybody can go back about their business safely. It's called efficiency and time, right? So, and by the way, my workout habits have changed drastically as a result of not being able to go to my boutique fitness, you know, uh, locations that I visit daily, um, every single day. And, and, you know, I think that as a result of us being a year into this now, you know, uh, we're, we're forever changed. Um, and I think that the way that people, you know, perceived work from home, you know, 10 months ago, eight months ago, six months ago, a month ago are very different because my friends who were commuting to the New York City every day in the beginning were trying to convince me how they can't wait to get back into their routine of commuting to New York City every day. And now you can ask any of them if they'll ever go back to their office. And they're like, maybe once a week. It's crazy, like what's going on, just the amount of change in such a short period of time. Yeah, real real quick before we, we close out, Sarah, do you have any thoughts on the office space on on what you see happening with people going back to work at an office? I mean, that's a tough one because as Jason said, it's changing. We're forever changed. I mean, that's exactly what Jason said. And so I think there's a lot of pe- a lot of companies that are realizing the cost savings too of this and they're sacrificing maybe a little collaboration to, to say, yeah, I think it's going to work. Like, I think we're going to have to make this work. Sarah, I'm curious what I keep thinking about is like, what is the, the role of a mall going to be, you know, and I, and I think we all, you know, see the writing on the wall and, and obviously, you know, you have companies like Amazon looking at, 
department store spaces to turn into distribution centers. And then you have multifamily, you know, looking at obviously uh, taking uh, components of a mall and repositioning it. You know, I think the the retail uh, real estate folks in this room believe that, you know, the better malls are going to be repurposed and, and you know, still uh, there's a place for them. And obviously the the, the tired B and C malls that were hurting pre-pandemic uh, are, are in some cases going to go away completely. Um, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on, you know, since we're basically saying that there's not a need for the same amount of retail store locations that there were previously, because you're definitely going to be doing a lot of more thing, a lot more things uh, digitally than you ever were before. Do you have any thoughts on, on malls in general? I, it's crazy because when you think about malls and how I'm, I'm assuming we're around the same age, like how we grew up and like we were in middle school and that was like the hot thing to do was walk around the mall with your friends. And now today, my daughter, who's going to be in middle school next year, all she wants to do is sit on the couch and play Roblox with her friends. Like it's a very different type of collaboration that's going on um, and a different type of relationships and malls there's so much more to malls than just shopping it was a place to connect and walk around with other people and have experiences with them and it's not like that any it, it's shifting from away from that so i think if malls want to survive they have to shift toward more experiential services that are being offered and not just focus it on what products are you going to go to buy because people can pull up their phone and buy products that's not going to be a draw anymore yeah that makes makes a lot of sense you're absolutely right it's true. Well, you guys, if nobody has any questions, we can wrap it up. Sarah, I'm so grateful for your time and that you came on to join us. I've got a lot to talk to you about. I can't wait to connect with you offline. I'm inspired every time I hear you talk on the topic. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was great to see all of you. And feel free to connect with me, especially if you want to participate in one of our studies. We will pay you. Please connect if you are in a mixed-use real estate <laughs> situation, whether you're you're a developer or a property manager or a tenant. We would love to talk with you if you if you have any involvement in smart technology or even thinking about making an investment or choosing a location based on smart tech. Sarah, you're you're awesome, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for for joining us today and. I would definitely like to uh, to follow up with you and discuss a few of these topics and others offline as well with Carrie. So, I would love that. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Thanks again, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Take care.